Magazines and Monsters, episode 83, Unknown Worlds of Science Fiction, number three, from 1975. Hey everybody, Billy D, aka Doc Strange here, back with another episode of the show and with our continuing coverage, and by our, I mean my guest and I, Unknown Worlds of Science Fiction, and uh, I uh, dragged kicking and screaming, no, 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 he he willfully came, uh, is uh, my buddy, author Derek Kunskin. How are you, Derek? I'm great, I'm great, and uh, really, uh, really happy to be chatting about this. Yeah, this, uh, you know, this issue, I know sometimes uh, reviewers will refer to second issues as having second issue-itis, where there's a a bit of a drop-off sometimes, but Mm -hmm. I think you and I both agree that that did not happen here, and I was pleasantly surprised. I I thought it, to me, I think that in cobbling together the first issue, I wonder if Roy Thomas had that problem that everybody seems to have in comics, which is, okay, it's approved have it ready in a month. Right. And Mm -hmm. this, he had lead time here because I was surprised at how many reprint stories were in the first one, which didn't seem to me to be like the, the way to write, like really launch a magazine. Whereas in this one, um, I think everything was brand new, wasn't it? I think there's actually two of the short stories, uh, two of the shorter ones, I think had appeared in a very, uh, probably barely printed, (laughs) uh, fanzine. Oh, I'm yeah. trying to think of which ones they were. Yeah, I think. Oh, it was. Yeah, there was a, a publication called Abyss uh, in 1970, where we're going to get a couple of stories from that in here. But okay. uh, other than that, though, yeah. So there's there's definitely less uh, reprint material in this issue than there was in the first, for sure, though. And and the other thing is, um, a lot of the creators are some of like they are big names in their first or second or third year of work in comics and so i think you have a bit of that youthful energy as well in this issue Mm -hmm. yeah totally agree yeah i i just this issue like i said i was for some reason in my head i was thinking oh you know i i don't know the first one was pretty good so if there's a little bit of a letdown here don't be surprised and then i you know by the time i finished reading it i was like Wow, this was really strong. I, I might come mm. over to your side of the fence there, and it, it might say it's better than the first. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, w- I will say that um, I found everything up to Triffids quite strong, and then Triffids and the epilogue I felt were a bit of that second issueitis. But I think it wasn't second issue so much as like there were different reasons about that, but. Uh, yeah, all to say there was a bit of unevenness, but over for the most part, I found all of the stories were were hitting harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Triffids, I can't wait to talk about that because <laughs> I uh, I had a definite, some definite, uh, my brain was working overtime thinking about that one and why it went down the road it did. So I can't wait to talk about that one sure, for sure. Same. That's, yeah, that's the very last story other than the epilogue. So uh, yeah. we well, why don't we dive right into it here? And of course, we need Sounds to great. start with the cover here. Uh, and like I said, this is Unknown Worlds of Science Fiction number two, uh, cover dated March 1975. Uh, it was kind of on the shelves uh, very late uh, 1974, though. But this is a cover by Mike Kaluta. Now, I got to say, I love this cover. And Roy Thomas does go into the cover and a few other things uh, in a, a text piece here early on in the issue. But what are your thoughts on this cover here? Um, first of all, it screams 70s sci-fi baby to me all over the place, right? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and 
the the other thing is the um, the cover of the first issue was relatively static like it was about hiding and slow movement i think was was were the keystones of that first cover this one is all straining muscles dynam dynamic curvature of everybody's body there everybody's contorted and straining there's so much energy in this cover compared to the first one that i it's just like it's an entirely different style and i think this is it this is like if we went from what kind of readers are they trying to get with the first cover and what kind of readers are they trying to hit with the second i think there's more of an adventure feel in this one there's more of an actiony feel which i think can pull you know have a few more hands pulling it off the shelf to look at it Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, this and it's a white background. And to me, that's very tough to pull off, uh, especially mm-hmm. with a bigger oversized magazine like this. But it's a stark white background and it's kind of a, a riff on uh, Iwo Jima there. And it, there's a little different, though. There's a robot helping to hoist a flag. And I'm pretty sure Roy Thomas said that in, in his uh, introduction piece here that, you know, uh, he had wanted to do something like this for a while. And he said to uh, Kaluta about it, and then uh, uh, it says, uh, I'm, I'm reading right from the piece here, it says, Gradually, as you can tell, the scene as Mike saw it became more like Earth and less like the moon, because I guess Roy Thomas wanted this to mm-hmm. be on the moon, and you know Kaluta was just going to draw it on Earth. And it says, uh, uh, that's why we added the big blue marble and a certain nameless ringed planet in the background, just to let everybody know this is a, you know, air quotes, science fiction mag not the latest issue of War Monthly. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, I, and I thought, yeah, that makes a huge difference. If you didn't have those things here, it, it would just look like, you know, like almost like an EC war book, right? Yeah, no, totally. On the white cover, um, I uh, my first two books had relatively dark covers. And when I mm-hmm. s- switched editors, my editor came, my new editor came in and said, you know, your covers are a bit dark and they don't leap off the shelves. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And he's like, so, so he was trying to show me some examples um, and, and he has been covering my books with, you know, yellows and oranges. Cause he says so many things on the shelves right now are dark they and the same. Yeah. And so you want something that like leaps out from the context of the shelf itself and what else is on the shelf. So this might be something along those same lines, because you're right. White is not a very common color for a cover in a comic because it's basically just white space. And so this this will, you know, against Conan or Man-Thing or, you know, any, you know, any of the horror mags, this may jump out a little more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think especially if you are looking at a comic book rack from any sort of distance, mm-hmm. this is this is going to stand out again, stark white background, the red, white, blue flag yeah. image, the yellow science fiction kind of jumping out at you. I love the little trademark in the corner there. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this this is going to jump off the shelf at you, uh, especially if you're a, a sci-fi uh, fan for sure, right? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I, I do want to say too about the cover is like the robot itself is like it's got articulations in its spine and there's a curvature of its spine as well showing the energy and so i thought that was a, a cool little addition as well yeah this robot we'll, we'll get to that story uh, war toy this robot i love how it's rendered by kaluta here and then interior as well i, I really like uh, the road they went down especially here on the cover though like you said it's really you know it almost looks like if you take like a an early 80s 19 uh, gi joe action figure and strip the plastic away that's that's what mm-hmm. was underneath there those like you said like you know oh just 
looks fantastic. And there's like, you know, all this movement in, you know, a robot that's just trying to hoist up a flag and the other, you know, the soldiers there as well. It looks like there's a dead guy there too, which man, that looks nasty. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great stuff. But yeah, it, it, thumbs up for the cover uh, from both of us, I guess. Right. <laughs> Agree. All right. Well, let's, uh, you know, move into the interior. And of course, when you flip open that very first page, they have a piece on the inside here. And this one is uh, by Alex Nino. And uh, I'm sorry, Nino. And uh, really, really interesting here as well. I I feel like this maybe could have been helped a little bit more with some color to it. It's it's still a great image, even in black and white. But I almost feel like there's a lot going on. So even a dash of color here and there may have helped. What do you think? Um. I think I agree. The The other thing is, I think in um, in Roy's introduction or in his editorial, he mentioned that Alex Nino um, is a newcomer as well. And so mm-hmm. this is early Alex Nino work. And like we've seen his later work, which is amazing. When I looked at this, I was like black and white. I always approach it slightly differently. And you're right. Their color would help us focus on some like would tell us what's in the foreground and what's not. Um, but like when looking just without color, it made me think that like the stylistically, this is like War of the Worlds era PK Russell's did layouts for first run Legion of Superheroes, Keith Giffen. Um, mm. like it's just, um, it, it's both of those guys did great sci-fi and both of those guys like were like, were into like the Kirby-esque, um, vastness and, and big curving machiny parts. And, um. Yeah, this this uh, there's some great creativity in here, just so much energy as well. And then you've got these, you know, arching machine arms framing a mandibled space snake with tiny striving human figures climbing at the bottom. And so, yeah, there's a lot to look at here. But it, again, it was it, um, Roy said it was for a fanzine. So, yeah. Um, you know, fanzines, yeah, need art to, to keep people interested as well. And so, you know, I've seen a few and, and this you know, I can totally see this being a spectacular one that people are cutting out and putting on their walls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll totally agree. Yeah, it's it says it's from uh, it's courtesy of the Philippine Comic Archives and the Philippine Science Fantasy Society. So that's mm-hmm. that's really cool. But it's uh, it previously appeared in a very special, very fine recent book. Mm, boy, the Hans Hannes Bach Memorial Showcase of Fantasy Art uh, compiled and edited by a certain individual that I will not even attempt to pronounce his name. <laughs> hmm. uh, but yeah, very, very cool stuff. And again, it's, it's a great image. You know, I, it's, it's, it's like a, a big piece of machinery. It looks like it's out in space. There's some kind of, it almost looks like a sun or a black hole or something going on behind there and some mm-hmm. giant worm-like creature. And yeah, it looks really, really cool. Yeah. There's a lot to love here. So, all right. Well then, uh, you know, we, uh, go right into, you know, one of our, uh, bookends here, which is, you know, another entry of, uh, slow glass here, uh, which is really cool. As we mentioned in our first episode, you know, it's a, a Bob Shaw, uh, concept, uh, from, uh, you know, a, a writer that they kind of, uh, borrowed here. And we have, uh, Tony Isabella, you know, scripting Frank Brunner and Klaus Jansen on art and, uh, yeah, really, really cool here. I really love Frank Brunner. I like Frank Brunner when, most when it's uh, wholesale, when he does the entire art himself. But I think uh, this looks pretty good uh, as well, doesn't it? Oh, I, I thought it was great. And I think on the on the art, like some of the stuff that drew me in was just the choice of camera angles, the way the page layouts were dynamic. Like even just the first page, you've got these, the where there's not a single, like if you were thinking of this as a movie, right? Not a single one of the director's choices of camera angle 
gives you the same angle of this person at any time. And so, and and at the same time, you've got this this gigantic building going up. And um, I think too, like on the subject of Brunner on his own or Brunner with with Jansen inks, for example, Jansen is a very strong inker. Like he's got a very strong inking personality. And I've always found this like you take a look at Jensen on the defenders, for example, or when he's inking daredevil and like it transforms the base art into something very Jensen. And I think he does here too. And it brings on, I think I was comparing this to, um, uh, what was it? Uh, the flash Gordon one, uh, Oh, smash, smash Gordon. Yeah. Smash Gordon. Yeah. In the last <laughs> issue. And, um, yeah, un unadulterated, uh, Brunner is, is a little more like, um, it's a little less realistic, whereas this one is a little bit more realistic in some ways, especially on the textures. I, I don't know. It, it's hard to say because some of some of Brenner's textures on, let's say, the pterodactyl wings were more textured, whereas the faces were slightly less. And so there, there, it's it's really interesting to look at the like what a what an inker does. And you and I were talking about this in the last episode as well when we were talking about the two different inkers on colon in the first issue and how different things became. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the, I love how we have, you know, it, it almost, we, we know what's going to happen here as far as we know what the concept is since of, uh, you know, we read the first issue and it, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's, it's a very sci-fi concept, but I feel like this first page is very like noirish, very mysterious, you know, that's that's what I got a bit. Jansen, I feel like he added that to this as well, like almost added another layer to this. Oh, you think it might not have been as dark um, in the Brunner art if he'd been inking it? Yeah, I think I feel like Brunner, if he would have been wholesale art here, it, it would have, you know, you would have definitely gotten that sci fi feel to it. But I think Jansen definitely adds another layer here where it feels like, you know, the, the street and the, the building that uh, uh, Mr. Sanson uh, O'Time, I think his name yeah. is going into, um, it does. It almost has like a, and I hate to say this because I always, you know, Jansen to me always means daredevil, but kind of that feel, like that that street mm -hmm. level feeling. Yeah, no, his his textures do, like it, it just the, if you look at the hatching on, on Time's face at the bottom left on the first page, like mm -hmm. there's, he's done a lot of work um, to make that, you know, come out that way. Um, and, and, uh, but I, I mean, um, Brunner as well was piling on the detail. So on the second page, you've just got this opulent penthouse, like, which is just filled to the brim with Rococo decorations and everything else. And, uh, you know, they took their time and they were, they were going to town on this. Yeah. And I, we're, we're getting the impression that Mr. Time was called to this, uh, a nice building here. All I could think of when I saw this building was uh, the TV show, The Jeffersons. It looks like a <laughs> <laughs> crazy apartment building they live in. But he goes in there and uh, we uh, learn quickly that this uh, uh, other gentleman that's here, uh, Lawrence Wilder, a uh, very rich man. And he had bought some slow glass at some point, uh, but he seems very upset uh, at something here. He's got his pipe and he's uh, smoking away, but I love that uh, panel at the bottom of, I guess it's page six, but it's a uh, story page uh, two here. Yeah. That's a really great panel there. A lot of detail, like you said. Yeah, and as you say, there's the cliffhanger ending, which is, my wife is dot, 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 not here. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. No, no, something much far more sinister. Yeah, you, you can tell there's something going on here that's uh, uh, not 
not quite right. But as the two of them, you know, gaze into a, a piece of slow glass that uh, Mr. Time uh, brought for him to see, you know, that's our lead in for a uh, war toy here. And mm-hmm. this is, uh, you know, once again, a script, it's Tony Isabella here as well. And this one is uh, penciled by George Perez. Oh, boy. And uh, inks by Rico Rival. And I really I don't. Other than this, I don't know if they, they've ever worked together before, but I like both of them separately as well, and I, I really enjoyed them here uh, from an artistic standpoint as well. I thought they did really good with this uh, uh, visual art here, and then, of course, Isabella killed it on this story. But uh, what are your thoughts uh, just overall, uh, specific, like nothing specific, but just overall about this uh, story, War Toy? I, I, I liked it. On the, first, on the first read, I think I read it at a surface level, and on the second read, I started, you know, looking at what are the parallels, why did they make the choices they did, and so on. And um, no, I, I thought it was, like, on the second read i thought it was a very strong story and uh, yeah really good Mm -hmm. yeah we open up to this story the very first page i mean i love this page it starts out you know with a, a robot on an operating table in a hospital and a reporter trying to figure out what's going on and get the scoop here but the there's a doctor that's kind of like you know telling her to buzz off and you know, some of the doctors are like, you know, uh, what are we going to do? Operate on a robot? Like, this is crazy. But this this one doctor seems, you know, hell bent on saving. I, I use, uh, you know, air quotes here, saving this uh, <laughs> this robot from uh, dying. And I love the logo at the top there. What do you think of that, too? Oh, everything. Everything is good here. And I think um, uh, now I don't know if that they don't say who the letterer is, do they? Um no, they do not. And, uh, you know, in the uh, Grand Comics database here, it says Karen Mantlow, but then there's a question mark. So they're not quite uh-huh. sure if, if there's quite a credit for that anyway. And, and sometimes I wonder, like, if you're looking at, you know, Byrne or Cockrum or Perez or something, like, when they've got, uh, are, like, words into the picture, like, here it's it's specifically part of the ceiling, um, whether that's the artist who puts that in or whether that's the letterer, I don't know. Yeah, I always wonder about that as well. I know, uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, uh, there was some DC work and some Marvel work done by uh, a guy named Gaspar Saladino. And I know he created a lot of logos and sometimes he would do a splash page and then it would be a different letterer for the rest uh, of the issue that would just do the the, the speech bubbles and thought Mm -hmm. bubbles and captions and things like that. But I know he did quite a lot of that especially late silver and bronze age for the two big two companies. Yeah. 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 But it's great. Yeah. It looks really, really cool. Like and, it, and it screams, it screams sci-fi on the first page because having a, a robot on a gurney is, you know, it's sci-fi. You're not in Kansas anymore. Mm. Oh yeah. It's fantastic. It's it, it, what a, what a great way to, you know, have a first uh, story in this second issue. It's fantastic. Yeah. All right. But uh, yeah, it's the doctor. Then he kind of, you know, like I said, he's arguing with this uh, reporter kind of telling her to uh, get lost uh, because you'll get your story later. And, you know, she then thinks back to like, hey, how did all of this get started? She says, guess I'll just relax. Try to organize my thoughts for tonight's broadcast. Uh, I should start with FM one's father. And that's the robot's name, FM one here. And then, you know, we lead into a succession of panels that. We see right off the gate, it, right out of the gate here, it's General Hamilton R.K. is, uh, I guess, the father of this robot. And we see, you know, a robot, you know, getting constructed here and the design and all that stuff. And I really like that set of panels. I, I, it's like a really thick square shape with round uh, edges. I, I really like that. I don't know why, but that really stands out to me. 
Yeah. Oh, I. You're right. That like the flashback stuff is in these thicker borders. Yeah. And the other and the present stuff is not doesn't have panel borders or doesn't often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't notice that. What, on this page, I, a couple of things leapt out at me. First of all, there's 13 panels on this page. Like, I mean, Perez was drawing microscopically to make everything fit in this uh, page. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he sometimes does that. He's like the king or he was the king of, of you know, fitting a bunch of, of panels on a page. The the other thing that uh, sort of struck me on this page is the top right corner, the reporter, you know, flicking her 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 big lighter. To, to light her <laughs> cigarette. Um, that's a very Perez image. Like I've seen that in mm-hmm. Teen Titans. I've seen that in probably Avengers, you know, in like it just that that female character, you know, just standing there like that and it just made me question where was this in his career and i just did a quick look up and um this is his second year in comics as a pro um and for the most part he's only been doing magazines so far and he started on deadly hands of kung fu a year earlier and then he was going to become the regular artist on the avengers um about six to eight months after this issue came out and he would do logan's run a year later so it's really interesting to see where he was in his career because there's a couple of images on the next page too where I felt like, wow, that's a real Perez pose or a Perez move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, speaking of that scene there, uh, I know smoking is bad for you. I'm not advocating for it. Uh, any of you, you know, little whippersnappers listening in out there, don't start smoking. It's bad for you. But I got to say, in old movies and old comics, when I see it, I love it. So I, there, yeah. I said it. I, I think it's I think it's a great sort of rhetoric physical rhetorical device. Uh, in in some of my science fiction stories, I, I have smoking even though it's like 500 years in the future, just because I figure well, cancer is conquered, so there's not that to worry about, and people may want their hit of nicotine or whatever else they're getting in there. So I've I've put smoking in there myself, and sometimes you have a reader go like, why are they smoking 500 years in the future? It's like well, whatever. Like people smoke now, and they know it's bad for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people aren't going to stop doing dumb stuff just because of the future. It's just not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that that's not gonna, the way it's going to work. I can I, I, there there's my soothsayer moment for the show. Everybody listen in. It's it, there's still going to be dumb people and dumb stuff in the future. Here's get the ready. wisdom. Yeah, get get ready. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I love the panels at the bottom. You know, they have these doctors saying to General Hamilton, "All right, General, your toy's finished. But on the record, I think it's a mistake. We can't trust an inhuman soldier with independent thought. There should be control devices like our other attempts." <sighs> And uh, Hamilton says, you mean our other failures? And he says, this isn't just a machine. We're talking about a fighting man. And I did find that interesting that they've, uh, you know, it's almost like, uh, uh, you know, to relate it to comics like the Weapon X program where you have Wolverine who's Weapon X, but it's actually Weapon 10 because there had been nine others before. So I thought that was interesting. No, totally. And I mean, uh, you know, um, making you know, using tech for war is is as old as as sci-fi itself and changing people is 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 also a thing. I think um, in 1974, 1973, Man Plus was uh, a, a book that came out that won an award or two about a guy who was genetically engineered and, you know, physically transformed to be able to survive on uh, Mars without a spacesuit. Mm, yeah, so, and I yeah, know it, it's in the news. It's uh, it's in the, the zeitgeist. Yeah, I think a few years before the television show, I can't remember the name of the author or the book, where it was like the the, the $6 million man concept that yeah. they based that show off of. That came out somewhere in the early 70s as well. So that's that's been floating around here for a little bit. 
Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, then the general says he's got to have the freedom to make on-the-spot assessments and accordingly, like any human soldier. If he doesn't, he's just another tank. Uh, so your objections aside, gentlemen, say hello to FM1, and he hits the button to <laughs> activate him. And I like how Roy has a, you know, a little uh, editor's note. FM1 is fighting machine one. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that's cool, but I love the training uh, montage here at the bottom of uh, page 10 here. What do you think of that? Uh, it's great. It's great. And the bottom left uh, panel was another one of those where I I saw, you know, that's a Perez sort of George Perez. Yeah. setup. Um, yeah, totally good. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. So the general, uh, he, he trains this uh, robot himself. You know, they don't put him through, you know, a boot camp and all that stuff. This general who's, you know, by all uh, rights and assumptions here, a highly decorated soldier and you know, mm -hmm. did did his time and he's very well respected. But, you know, we do see there are a lot of others that don't really uh, agree with this and think it's a waste of money. And, you know, no matter how many, uh, you know, uh, accolades he has, totally think he's kind of gone off the deep end here with uh, using this robot, creating it and then thinking this is going to be the future. Right. Well, it, this is this is in some ways the the argument about AI at all, right? Like it literally mm -hmm. is, you, you know, I want to make it think independently and others are like, you want it thinking independently and you're giving it a weapon. Um, I think there's also like there's that angle, but I think the stronger angle is robots are bad or ro like there's a prejudice feel about like the story. Mm -hmm. And so so there's that as well. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but you're right. There, there definitely is like a, a bit of like you know bigotry going on here against this poor robot, right? Oh, and and that was the the through line that I found much stronger on my second read, and I've got some thoughts at the end about that. Oh, cool, cool. But yeah, it's <laughs> they 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 put them through like a uh, oh, I'm trying to think of what you call these like a, uh, a, a an obstacle course type thing, and he passes it with flying colors, mm -hmm. and uh, the general says. To the other guys watching, uh, well, sirs, what do you think of my boy now? And the one guy says, I think he's gone mad calling that metal monstrosity my boy. There's only one possible decision we can make. And they basically say, you know, they're, they're going to pull the plug on this because it was insanely expensive to make this one robot. And they don't have the money to make an army of them. And they just kind of feel like, you know, it's just one guy. He ain't going to make much difference. And he'll kind of get in the way. Or what if things get screwed up? And they, you know, they basically tell him. You know, we we don't uh, care about your uh, war toy, they call them. And you can see, I, I love that succession of panels there. There's what, one, two, three, six panels where you keep zooming in closer and closer on the robot when they say that, you know, you know, war toy, you know, kind of uh, taking a, a jab at him there. I love that. Yeah, no, it's, it's I mean, that's, that's something, um, you know, comics and panels do particularly well. I mean, every panel is represents time as you shift from one panel to the other. And here they're showing you, you don't get a sense of exactly how long is passing between panels, but you do have the succession of moments that are happening. And uh, yeah, the passage of time is really powerful there. Mm -hmm. But he's not giving up on it. He, he just basically decides on his own, like, you know, Hey, uh, if uh, they won't back me up, uh, uh, I'll, I'll do something about it. <laughs> I love how he's standing next to the robot, you know, with no shirt on for some reason. And he says, those fools won't always be in charge. Lad, the army changes with the times and we're part of those times. And the robot says, General, sir, why have you taken such an interest in me? Even I can see that this it's hurting your career. And he says, you're perceptive, FM1, far more than I expected. 
Maybe it's because I brought you into the world, so to speak. Maybe it's because I think you deserve a chance. You're a good man. And he puts his hand on his shoulder and the, the robot kind of turns to look there. And again, it's they're they're, they're giving this robot, you know, uh, make, they're basically making it like it is a man here. And the, the, the general is treating him that way. So it is interesting. It, it, and the to get to that point on the 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 prejudice and bigotry, I mean, part of bigotry is you make the other not human. And here what they're doing is you have some people who are like, OK, it's obviously not human. And then you have one person treating FM1 as human and you see the difference it makes. And so there's there's that going on, I think, being juggled as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really, really good back and forth here through this. But then uh, suddenly there's, you know, war, you know, Earth has been invaded and we see a, a newspaper. And I love when you see newspapers and comics like this. <laughs> a, and it's the Daily Bugle, by the way. I was like, wow, it says alien attack in Australia. UN calls emergency something to, you know, deal with world threat imminent. And yeah, it shows, uh, you know, these flying saucers basically come in and they, they, they conquer Australia. I was like, wow, holy crap. Yeah, there was like 15 million people in Australia at that time. Mm-hmm. And there's people yeah. watching it on television, too. And they're just like, mm-hmm. whoa, you know, we're in big trouble here. And, you know, right away, uh, it, the, the, the general's like, aha, this is this is my time to shine. Me and the yeah. FM1 here. And I love it. It's like, you know, they, they were like, eh, we don't need him. Get rid of him. But the general uh, seizes this opportunity to uh, show them what the his uh, his boy can do. I, I really like this. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really, really cool here. And it's it's interesting, like you don't ever uh, you see some tendrils here, but you don't really get a shot of uh, a full shot of these aliens here. And they're really not what the story is all about. So I do understand that. But I just thought, oh, man, I wish we would have got a shot to see what they were all about. <laughs> I think you're exactly right that that's not what the story is about. And therefore, they didn't put a lot of emphasis on that. That's um that's a subtle point, And it's um. It's something where I think the writer and the artist are they're showing a certain amount of restraint because they know that to serve the story better that they're trying to tell emotionally, they've got to hold back on some elements that would also be super cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they want the robot to be front and center. They don't want him to be upstaged by these aliens, monsters, whatever. And you're right. I think that's why they did it. I think that would have maybe become more the focus of the uh, story, which is not what they wanted. Mm hmm. But yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I mean, you get some. Uh, uh, well, the, I, I, did, I forgot to mention too. The general actually goes out uh, on the front lines with the robot to uh, a fight here, which is kind of funny. I don't, I'm not sure they'd be okay with that unless they were looking to get rid of him. I guess, but yeah, the, expensive in- infantry. <laughs> yeah, but the the general he uh, he he's not going to make it back from this. He gets uh, blasted by uh, one of the aliens, and the, the robot then blasts that alien that shoots him. And the general looks in bad shape and he, the robot says, General, and he goes, I'm done for. Get the information to our boys. And uh, the robot just kind of looks at him and you can tell there's there's this moment of him being sad that, you know, his uh, air quotes father mm-hmm. has died right in front of him. And he gets angry and you see that clenched fist again. Another great set of panels here by Perez and Raval. Yeah. No, the storytelling is really strong. Like and and the the amount of words in this is not that much either like for a 70s comic it's not being drowned out in words either so um isabella is letting perez tell the story visually in ways that other writers don't often do in um in uh in marvel right of of this bronze era 
Mm-hmm. And Tony Isabel is a you know very good writer, so it's not like he couldn't have written more. Like you said, I think he you know, intentionally kind of pulled back so that the the visual storytelling here could do its thing, and he didn't want to intrude on it. And hey, kudos to, to him. To be fair, as well though, it's not like Perez left him a lot of space. Like this this page has <laughs> like what another twelve panels, and so the thing is, where would you put a, a balloon? So yeah, yeah. I mean, and Isabella does do very well with this story. To me, the the general. And the the robot there, uh, and then the the, the other uh, military people, you know, their their voices are pitch perfect. I think everything mm-hmm. sounded yeah. great. You're you're right. It's not an overwritten comic. Like some of the exposition is still going to be carried in the dialogue, but it's not more than that. Mm-mm, no, but the FM one does make it to uh, the, the the boys, and he gives them the information about how to you know defeat these aliens. So, you know, over a little bit of time here, I think it says 87 days, uh, eventually they do defeat them. And, uh, you know, that's that's that. And that's we get a panel. It's on uh, page 17 of the comic of, uh, you know, kind of that mirrors the cover where they're raising a flag uh, on uh, this. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm assuming it's somewhere in uh, Australia because it didn't seem like the alien invasion got true than that. They were able to bottle it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's the U.N. flag. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I did see. Okay, I mean, they do mention them at some point. They say the army forces joined up with the UN forces outside of Sydney, you know, to do that. So I was like, okay, mm-hmm. well, whatever. But then uh, peace took that change away. It says on this bottom panel, and then and there's like a a council here, and they say, in view of your outstanding service, FM One, we're granting you an immediate honorable discharge. Good luck, civilian. And he says, civilian. And he says, sir, I've only been programmed for military service. Where do I go to reenlist? And the guy says, you don't. The Army has considered this matter and has concluded that having even one robotic soldier would set a bad precedent. So they basically say, hey, thanks for, uh, you know, saving Australia and maybe and probably the world. But uh, uh, we don't want you anymore. And it's like, wow, like it, that that yeah. really hit me. I'm like, yeah, it's only a robot, but he does have these like feelings. And I, I felt really bad for him. Mm hmm. No, no, totally. And and I think the the argument about the precedent is one that you've you, you, you know, people will have heard in the civil rights movement and 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 where prejudice mm-hmm. and, and bigotry was is, is getting in the way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then <laughs> some of the artwork here, uh, it's really good artwork, but it made me laugh. Like the very next page, the top panel has him uh, in the unemployment line. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> people are like turning their heads and looking and staring. And uh, he tries to he says, his training qualified him for several good positions, and then he didn't hold any of them for very long. And you see a bunch of, like, screaming. I'm assuming there is bosses at him. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's a really sad part of the story. And it says he's his part started wearing down. He malfunctioned occasionally. The jobs he could hold didn't pay enough for him to replace those parts. And it's just showing him, like, sweeping floors and stuff like that, like doing some, you know, more menial work. But, you know, it's it's really sad. It's like, if this was a real human being, and this happens all the time, especially in the United States, I'm not sure about other countries and their soldiers, but happens a lot uh, where they just kind of end up withering away to nothing uh, when they get back to civilian life. And I, man, I felt really bad for, you know, what's a, a robot here? Hey, 100%. Yeah, agree, agree. Mm-hmm. And then it shows him, you know, getting picked up by an ambulance because uh, it says uh, he would have died in a gutter except that the chance passing of an ambulance from the VA hospital 
and a compassionate paramedic who decided that robot or not, uh, FM1 was going to receive, uh, you know, uh, some uh, uh, help here. And this is where the, you know, the story kind of picks back up instead of being in a flashback. It, it's caught up now to, uh, you know, the, the, the girl in the uh, hospital here that was uh, reliving this, right? Yeah, no, I, I like the structure of the story that started us off in media res and then goes back through the flashbacks to get us back to the present. I think that it's an effective storytelling structure. Yeah, and then uh, a guy comes out and he says, uh, we moved the robot to a private room. You can go talk to him if you'd like. And uh, she comes in and she says, FM1, I'm, and he goes, I know, the doctor told me, but I don't wish to be interviewed about all I do wish is that I could move enough to switch myself off. And she says, switch yourself off. That's, and he goes, suicide, perhaps. I don't suppose you'd assist me. I'll tell you where the switch is. And she has this really shocked face. And he says, you're shocked, amusing, as amusing as the notion of an intelligent gun sight. That's what I am, you know. And she says, no, you're not. You're a veteran of our army. And once I go on the air with your story, you'll get the money needed for your repairs, FM1. You can count on that. And he says, I don't want to be a cause. I want it to be a soldier. They made me a war toy. And uh, what about this ending here? Oh, it's fantastic when he hits his own self-destruct thing. Um, and and it was that I don't want to be a cause. I wanted to be a soldier was the thing that really clicked for me that this was this was not about AI. It, it was about like the best science fiction, like what it's supposed to do is it's not about the future. You use the you know, technology in the future to talk about the present. And so in 1975, you were you were talking about soldiers who came back from Vietnam in the United States, and you were also talking about black soldiers who came back, who, who you know, sacrificed a lot, and then may have, uh, you know, been, been facing prejudice in the U.S. back uh, stateside and stuff. And so I think that all of that came clicking in for me when he said, I don't want to be a cause, I wanted to be a soldier. Yeah. Yeah, it's really it's 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 tough to it's tough to read and think about. And yeah, he smashes and basically kills himself there. And she says there's a close up of her eye and it's she just says, oh, my God, it's really good. Yeah. And and the thing is, I think like once I once I looked at it in those terms, I found it to be a lot like the um, the movie Men of Honor with Cuba Gooding Jr. And oh, yeah. About Carl here. The first African-American Navy diver and the kind of, you know, systemic sort of like every single commander was against him ever advancing, you know, yeah. and and it's it like it reads like this story does. So, yeah. Yeah, really good movie, by the way. <laughs> really good movie. Yeah. Um, and so then uh, the, the reporter, Betsy, she comes back to the office the next day and a guy says, Betsy, where have you been? And she goes, what's up? And, he, and another guy says, you haven't heard? The aliens have invaded again. And uh, the guy says, hey, what's the matter? And she walks away and she says nothing. Uh, it'll be OK in a second. Have the copy boys bring me the teletype copy. I'll start working on tonight's broadcast. And then uh, what about this last panel here that's like in darkness? Mm -hmm. No, it's it's um, a beautiful ending. And I mean, the in part, the ending is it's the twist you see coming. The one thing you rejected forever is the one thing you need to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, but they personalized it here in like they made as you say like you're you were saying over and over something i believe which is like this is a sad story and i mean to to move a reader with a story is is like the highest thing you can do as a writer and, and an artist for a comic and that 
that silhouetted image at the end, you know, just after her one tear, just after she witnessed somebody committing suicide, just after she realizes that crap, we needed him for the last one. And now he's no longer there because of the way we treated him, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, all, all together that, uh, everything comes to a close in that last panel, all of those feelings. Yeah. Very poignant, uh, uh, story and ending here. I was like, wow. Like, and this is like, if, if a, a comic book, a prose book, a, a magazine like this, if anything, any of those things can get you to really get invested and think about it and it can stir some emotion in you, but that's, they, they've done their job and then some, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, so, yeah. I wish I'd known that at far earlier in my writing career too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Isabella, uh, Perez and, uh, Rival, uh, kudos, uh, cause that was a really, really good story here, but, uh, uh oh, oh, so yeah, overall good one, right? You can't go wrong with that. No, oh, I, I loved it. Great way to open. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And I, I, at one point, I was surprised that they spent that much real estate on it, but it was only 12 pages, but it was, I thought those were well spent. Well, yeah, you figure, I think the whole comic is only like 70, 75 pages or something like that. So mm -hmm. a 12 pager, that is, yeah, that's a good percentage right there of the book. Yeah. And now, I mean, in the first issue we talked about, they had a, you know, a, a write-up on uh, an interview with Ray Bradbury. This time uh, they have one with Alfred Bester, uh, and the interview is conducted by Denny O'Neill. And I didn't get to read all of this, and I really want to because I have actually, you know, uh, confession, uh, never read any Bester. I've heard of him, heard of some of his, uh, you know, uh, books and things and short stories, but I had actually never uh, read any of them. So uh, uh, what do you think of this? Uh, I'm in the same boat. I think uh, he's a golden age author. And so I don't believe I've uh, read his stuff either. Um, he did come up in The Simpsons when Martin Prince was running for class president. He said, I would, as president, I would demand a science fiction library with Asimov, Bester and Clark. Um, and so, so yeah, he, he's one of the biggies. And I think uh, in this one, they note, or in this magazine, they note that he won the first Hugo mm -hmm. in 53. Um, I, I read through about three quarters of this interview. Um, and one of the things I found was interesting about it was that like, uh, he, he talked about loneliness as a motivator for what kind of writing he's interested in doing. Um, mm -hmm. because, um, at one point he talks with Danny O'Neill about, you know, who also obviously is a writer and a journalist about how writing is a really solitary experience. And for that, he then went into TV and, uh, magazine editing and stuff like that and magazine writing just to be with other people, which is really interesting because, um, uh, O'Neill was saying, you know, it's a long time between your sci-fi stories and why is that? And so it was interesting that the nature of the work, um, drove Bester to be in more social writing places. Uh, oh, very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. If I mean, and you obviously know this, uh, being an author, it's, it's, uh, when you have to, sit down and actually write and get something done or if it's something you can do on your own time uh, those are two different things but if you're just trying to write at a, even at a casual pace like you said it's just it's just you and the paper or the computer yeah. and, you know, that's it so uh, you you really have to be okay with that uh, solitary you know uh, working environment absolutely yep 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 uh, mm -hmm. I agree. And luckily I'm okay with that, but yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's limits, there's lower borders and upper borders. And so, uh, it, it could be that Bester's, you know, lower need of, of, you know, just interaction is, is higher than mine, but yeah, it's, uh, 
but it was it was it was interesting to hear that as a main motivator for his move of, of a couple of career moves. Yeah, he uh, like you said, 1953. That was uh, the one that he's probably best known for when he won that Hugo. Uh, the Demolished Man is the name mm-hmm. of that story, and then uh, the Stars, My Destination. Those are like yeah. the two kind of biggest ones from him. And I uh, that one was 1956. And yeah, I, I definitely want to read them because just those names alone sound really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we do get uh, there is a page, and I thought to myself, like, what's going on here? Wait a minute. And I'm like, oh, it says right at the top, uh, a, a sample page of Australian comic strip adaptation of Alfred Bester's. The stars, my destination, and it's a, it's a, it's a really cool page. It's it's definitely uh, slightly different from the majority of what you were seeing in the United States at the time, but it's actually pretty cool here. It's a, it's a neat little page. I thought, oh, I wish they would have, you know, I wish I get my hands on the whole comic. Mm-hmm. No, I, I um, I've sometimes seen European or whatever comics like from from probably seventies, eighties. I don't think sixties, but like you get so used to the conventions of. Uh, Marvel and DC, which, you know, are dominant culturally, you know, in North America. Um, And then so when you see even just differences in the way they letter and, you know, maybe the the, this doesn't have the dynamism of, let's say, a a Marvel thing. It's a little more on the DC side where the 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 body language is a bit more stiff, but the draftsmanship is is stronger. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see that. Yeah, it's you know just the the layouts, panel borders, things like that. The way the you, know, you said the the dialogue and caption boxes and stuff. It's just different. It's it's definitely you know piqued my interest. That I'm just like mm, maybe I could find mm. it somewhere. We'll see. But I love that image in the middle of the, the spaceships. That looks fantastic. That like blows me away. Yeah, I would. Be, you're right. Like for historical curiosity, I would certainly want to to see it. So then, all right, we're gonna move on. The next story is Adam dot dot dot. And no Eve. And uh, this is uh, scripted by Danny O'Neill and art is by Frank Robbins and Jim Mooney. And this is uh, adapted from the story by Alfred Bester. So this is an interesting art combination here. I don't think I've ever seen these two together before, but I will admit sometimes when I see Robbins artwork, um, I've seen a, a comic strip, you know, that he's done. I can't remember the name of the comic strip, but like, you know, a newspaper strip. And it is mind blowing how great it is. And just, wow, I, the high level it is. And then sometimes when I see some of his comic book work, I don't know if he wasn't, uh, given the best options for inkers for his pencils, or I, I just, sometimes it's just a little too cartoony, a little too, um, rough, not quite a style that I really like, but I, I do like Jim Mooney as a penciler and an inker. And I think this art team, uh, along with Denny O'Neill here, was a, a really good team for this uh, story here. What did you think overall? So I'm really glad you started with that because I think the biggest um, sort of feeling I had was about Frank Robbins' art. And I actually specifically have in my notes, Billy, what did you think of the art? Um, <laughs> yes, uh, I... Like Robbins to me has a sort of exaggerated, weirdly proportioned anatomy, like just like the way his the guys like the hands are really big and the arms are smaller, but the elbows are super bony. And a lot of it can be, you know, some of it you can say, okay, part of this is perspective and foreshortening and stuff. But even when people are standing straight, like the necks are a little thin. And so Robbins has always like he is evocative. Like you can tell there's emotion here. You can tell there's striving, there's um, emotion. It's clear in terms of storytelling, but on the draftsmanship 
Robbins has always been on the edge of the uncanny valley for me. Like, for example, um, I really liked the Invaders comic when I was 10, 11, 12. (laughs) (laughs) And as I was collecting them and I got to a period where for like two years, Robbins was the artist. And I was like, "Uh, I don't want to collect Invaders anymore. Like it's like it, it soured my experience on the Invaders, which I found really sad because I really liked those stories. I also, like Roy Thomas, was somebody who had a lot of um, nostalgia and looking backwards worked really strongly on me. So um, when I got to here and I saw, oh, Frank Robbins, I I had that same sort of set of feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what Frank Robbins to me, I think too, sometimes he was also brought into books and I immediately, when I think of Frank Robbins, I think of the Invaders as well, where if you have a, not specifically, but this type, uh, John Romita Sr., who had just passed away recently, uh, but mm-hmm. he, when you go from a style like that to a style like Robin's, it is very jarring. So even if Robin's style isn't, you know, something, is, it's just kind of like you're, you're okay with it. It's so jarring when you go from one of those things to the other. And like you said, perspectives and uh, just the size of the the characters he draws and stuff like that. It's so jarring to me. I fell into the same boat as you. It's just like, oh, I'm going to check out my uh, old Invaders comics. And then I get to the Robbins ones. And I'm just I, I, I do uh, thumb through them a bit uh, quicker just simply because the story is still there uh, with Roy or sometimes there was a fill in here and there. Uh, but it artistically, I just think it's so like if he would have started out from issue one with the invaders, maybe I would have picked it up. Maybe I wouldn't have. But maybe over time you would, you know, like, you know, get used to his art on that title where when you started out with these other people that had like very clean lines and then you went to him. It's I think that's that's part of the turnoff. I, I think, too, it, um, you're right about. OK, so you've got Kirby in the 60s and you've got Ditko and basically um Ramita and and Lee were saying to all of these new artists here take a look at the way Kirby lays out a page take away take a look at the way Kirby does energy um dynamism anatomy and everything and so basically it's not that Marvel had a house style but there's a house feel and Robbins to me is more of like an EC feel he's it's the uncanny valley makes it to me more suited for horror and unsettling than he does for anything that I think that Marvel would sort of publish in its mainstream. And, you know, but if he's a guy who can deliver the art on time and it's good enough to sell books at, you know, whatever rate, then the, the way the business works is he's going to keep on getting work. Um, mm-hmm. and, and on your point about the shift in artists during the, the run, it occurs to me that like sometimes I take a look at, you know, Image Comics or Boom or Dark Horse that are coming out right now and I'm expecting the art to be spectacular, but very often in creator-owned works, you see that it's it's breaking in artists who are doing this stuff with, with some bigger writers very often. And sometimes the art is a little off-putting, but it you you see people just throwing accolades at it because it it fits for the kind of story and it fits the communication and it communicates the the emotion and stuff. And so what I could see is, for example, Frank Robbins' art is so distinctive that you could, I can imagine it, let's say, in a new image book that has, you know, that has this kind of feel with a Robbins feel. And I would expect that to be dark, bit of uncanny valley, bit of horror, bit of unsettling. And so maybe it's also 
best fit like which like is this the best artist for this particular story and sometimes mm -hmm. editors don't have the choice they want yeah i totally agree because one of the things i always thought of with him is i don't think superheroes necessarily suited his style well just like my favorite artist gene colin i, I superheroes when he did superhero work he did some captain america i think it was late 60s i like it it looks good but uh, it just to me like that was definitely he he was definitely better for other genres than he was for superheroes and it's not that he couldn't draw them superheroes he yeah. can but i just think you know his style just didn't fit superheroes very well and i don't think frank robbins did either because uh, you were saying about the invaders he did a, a bit of a run on Captain America in the mid late seventies as well. And I just, I don't really care for it. Cause, and again, he was following Sal Buscema who I loved on that title. I thought he was perfect for Captain America, his, you know, punches and, you know, action and things like that. And it, it very, you know, clean lines. And then you went to Robbins and it was very, very jarring to me. I was just like, Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but on this, on this story, I think, um, I think, you know, you've got this guy who's crawling along. You're starting in the middle of the story again where, you know, he's obviously burnt. There's, you know, this this whole environment is just blasted to pieces and he's just crawling along. And the the sort of patheticness of the guy is so well communicated, it, even if I don't like looking at his face. I mean, the emotion of of like feeling this pathetic dragging you know half dead guy along is is really really clear like the storytelling is really clear yeah and it's interesting with mooney being the inker here i don't see any mooney here at all this almost looks to me like it's just frank robbins so he must have been very very uh, uh hands off with the inks here the the other thing is i mean it, inker and and penciler i mean it's sort of a i mean they each have to do their part, right? But I mean, in the same way as as Jansen's inks will be super strong on anybody's, um, and Colin is hard to ink for many people. I wonder if the style of of um, Robbins, like it would to to bring it closer to what Mooney does. I wonder if Mooney would have to redraw it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And this and this story, it's it's a fun story. It's like a, you know, we get like another kind of post apocalyptic uh, story here. Mm -hmm. um you know with uh you know a crazy like uh, like you said uh end of the world scenario here where this uh like you said this guy is like crawling along like it almost looks like a, a desert area or just an area that's been ravaged by you know nukes or something and then he starts hallucinating and he sees this guy and he calls him hallmeyer and he goes but you're dead you've got to be and uh, the guy says how do you like your world steven and then he says no i'm innocent and he goes I'm afraid not, Stephen. You didn't intend the Holocaust you caused, but you're guilty because you were warned. Remember, I warned you. And we go into a flashback here of this Hallmeyer guy, I guess, was a mathematician. And uh, this uh, this uh, guy, I'm trying to think his name is Stephen Crane, uh, was uh, going to go up in some kind of rocket. And uh, this Hallmeyer is telling him, like, hey, listen, he goes, the catalyst you're planning to use in your rocket fuel, if even one drop hits the Earth, It'll start a chain reaction that'll envelop the globe. It'll reach out to every iron atom, and there's iron everywhere, even in the human body. There won't be any Earth left for you to return to. And he says, I'm sick of your whining, Hallmeyer. I hired you as a mathematician, not a doomsayer. Either do what you're paid or leave. And, you know, obviously we know what road this is going to go down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, this is another one of those. Um, it, it's a cautionary tale, you know, mm -hmm. Um 
after the atomic bomb, science fiction had a whole lot of cautionary tales about humanity having the technology to destroy itself without the wisdom not to. And this seems to be right in that strike zone. And I mean, science fiction cautionary tales go all the way back to Frankenstein. And, you know, later times we get the cautions about genetic engineering, nanotech and AI. This one is, is you know, it seems to fit the atomic age um, because 1975 was still, you know, prime time for, you know, the Cold War and, you know, in the U.S., I know they were hiding under desks as nuclear drills and stuff like that still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's not like an overly complicated story. That's, you know, the the crane goes up in the rocket and, you know, of course, as Hallmeyer tried to tell him, it it causes disaster here and he he falls back to Earth and he's Mm -hmm. able to parachute out but breaks his leg and, you know, then uh, his own dog turns on him. It's just... uh, it it just ends with him, you know, uh, laying there, uh, probably getting ready to die. There is some interesting uh, dialogue here, though, I felt uh, by uh, Denny O'Neill. What did you think of these like last couple of panels when he's laying there kind of uh, getting ready to die? Um, <laughs> he says it's not right, not right that life should pass away because of one mad creature. And, you know, that's that's his growth. But unfortunately for this story and this world of three billion, you know, it's a little late. Um, but it gets poetic. You're right that there's there's there. Denny then pulls back and points out that, you know, like we're just one kind of life. There's other kinds of life that can come up and stuff like that. And so um, it, it becomes about cycles. Um, I don't know if that would have been from the Bester story or if that's an O'Neillism or what. But so interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. For sure. It's uh, you know, it's like a life will go on even if there's this crazy disaster. Which uh, I don't know if I want to test that theory. <laughs> uh, I think I don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're gonna move on to uh, the Hunter and the Hunted, and this is art and story by Mike Kaluda. And uh, I'll just uh, see here uh, on the contents page uh, for this one. It just says the aggressors were victorious. Their enemy was annihilated. Their sole mistake was they hung around laughing a few minutes too long. Uh, so in the first issue, you and I talked about a story uh, that Neil Adams did. Uh, it was, you know, art and story by Neil Adams. And of course, you know, the art was super cool. The story, we we, we kind of got what he was going for, but weren't sure if the, you know, the, the art and the like mechanisms he used were really, you know, uh, the way to go. If it really relayed his message or in the best way. I kind of felt that way about this story too. Like this is this is the same feeling I got from this story here. It was kind of like, um, yeah, I'm not sure. It, even if artistically this gets the point across, like I feel this one's even a little bit weaker than that Adam story. What do you think? So I found uh, the opposite. I think um, the art carried almost the entirety of the story, and the words were almost unnecessary. And so, Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't get the, like what you read about, like it's the enemy stuck around too long. I took those to be the people. in so just, just for the, you know, the podcasting audience, you've got this kid floating in space. His family is dead. He's got his bubble helmet on and he's just floating there. He, and the first page is him just slowly managing to grab a gun that's floating right beside him. And you've got this ship that is behind him. And on the next page, you've got the ship getting closer and closer and he's like cold his mom and dad he's like i i don't want to cry you're gone and that ship just keeps getting closer and i didn't take it to be that those people were like i I thought they were rescuers but i guess it could make sense either way 
but then the ship as it gets closer and closer the the kid is like on the skin of the ship and he then fires the gun and the gun is like the the laser coming out of it is so bright that he says mommy my eyes are burning and so he blinds himself by shooting this gun but what it does is it opens up ruptures the top of this other ship and then all the people fly out and are depressurized into space and he's you know he can't even see what he's done but he's you know a if they're rescuers then he's killed his rescuers as a cautionary tale of you know kids and guns and stuff if it's enemies then that's a, a story about revenge probably being cold and you know pointless and sterile so i i i ignored the words for almost the whole thing be, but the thing is I had to really look at the art really hard, I think three reads before I got the story, which I, I think um, Roy said in his introduction that um, uh, he he took it as a compliment that he got it on the first try, on the first read, which uh, Kaluta had said not many people had done. Yeah, this was a tough one for me. Visually, even, it's just like, yeah. Oh, man, yeah, I just, I, I, I looked at it, and I looked at it, and I was just like, I, I'm having a really tough time understanding visually what's going on here. And the the tiny, tiny bits of dialogue, you really, you don't get a whole lot of help there, yeah. other than to, you know, it, it really just conveys what this little kid is feeling, not really the situation specifically of what's going on i mean it's just oof, man yeah you to me you did a better job of explaining this than uh, uh michael luda did <laughs> <laughs> so what i would say too is um i think his choice of doing a lot of panels that were extreme close-ups like on a gun on the kid like there aren't a lot of establishing shots and one of the things you sometimes hear comic artists and comic writers talk about is you basically need an establishing shot every page so that you keep the reader oriented and knows what's going on. And because there's also no movement, the kid is just floating in space. And so you see different perspectives of his little fetal position as he floats in space. The sense of movement is a little more difficult to detect. And so it, you have the reader really has to intuit it between, you know, between the panels. Yeah, it's it's very dark. I almost thought maybe a little bit more whites would have yeah. helped or something. It's it's very very dark. But I mean, again, I I applaud him for doing something different here and just just trying to you know pretty much visually tell uh, this story here. So you know, hey, kudos to uh, Mike Kaluta. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's it, um, I found it to be stronger than the 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 Adam story. Well, you know what? I mean, the thing is, Adam still had that you know uh, kid being killed and you know the. Maybe they're the same level of potency story wise. I don't know. Yeah, I was like, to me, they were pretty equal just because I thought neither one did anything better than the other for me. <laughs> it was it, both of them were very tough for me. And I was just like, OK, I'm like I just put in my notes, Derek, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what you got, buddy? <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh. Well, it's like in Euchre, you count on your partner for one. Mm, yep. <laughs> so, all right. Well, they have uh, another uh, piece here: uh, science fiction fans and the Hugo. Uh, and it's a uh, this is an article by Don Thompson. And the names Don and Maggie Thompson uh, are in my brain. I can't think of what else it was of theirs that I've read that I know had something to do with Marvel Comics. I don't know if it was in a another sci-fi magazine or if it was in one of the horror magazines. I cannot, for the life of me, remember, but. I know I've seen those two names before when it had something to do with, you know, Marvel Comics in this uh, 70s era. But, uh, yeah, it's like a just like a, a four pager here that uh, 
it, it talks about, you know, uh, the Hugo Awards and we see uh, uh, Kelly Frias and uh, uh, Harlan Ellison, you know, holding their awards. And yeah. I, I, I love that picture of Harlan Ellison. By oh, the way. he looks so young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I looked at that. And I'm just like, I didn't think Harlan Ellison was ever that young. You know what I mean? Was, yeah, <laughs> but he doesn't look different either. Right. I mean, his hair grade, but I mean, his hairstyle never changed. But no, it's 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 a good little article. I found it. It's It's a nice little history of SF fandom and fanzines. And I felt that it was useful for this magazine because there's lots of parallels to comic fandom, which is hardly surprising because there was so much crossover, at least in the writers um, in the 30s, 40s and 50s. Um, and and so it was it was neat to see that, you know, 4,500 fans gathered in Washington in Worldcon 1974. I've gone to, I think, eight or nine Worldcons myself. And so I've watched the Hugos be given out and I vote on the Hugos as well. Um, and, uh, one thing this, this article did that, uh, I, I, pro I would say let's, let's minorly correct it. They compared the Hugo awards to the Oscars, which is not quite the case because the Oscars are voted on by the members of the Academy, which is the people working in it. And the sci-fi equivalent of that is the Nebula award where you've got the science fiction mm -hmm. writers of America, their members who vote on it. So it's like your peers voting on your stuff. Yeah. The Hugo's is the people's choice where it's fans get to pick uh, who's nominated and what the things are. And so that that's just a super minor point of difference between the Hugo's and the Nebulas, which are our two biggest awards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, it, I would it, getting a, an award that's a fan award would be fantastic and uh, not to uh, poo poo that. But for mm -hmm. me, an, an award from my peers would probably uh, hold a little bit more weight for me, possibly, but at, hey, yeah. to get to get any award would be fantastic. Well, exactly, and even like I've I've over the last few years, um, you know, you look at the ballots and like once you're on the ballot, like once there's there's those top five picked by either your peers or or fans. I mean, there's a reasonable argument that any one of them could win. Like you can see how any one of the five could win and how the other four why they're in there and so the thing is just being nominated as well like although it's a you know it's, it sounds a bit trite oh it's an honor just to be nominated the thing is once you're in that top five like anybody could win and it almost doesn't matter who wins um so yeah it's it's uh it's amazing yeah and quite honestly it just now this is just me personally but as long as i was uh, if i was writing for a living and i was making a good living doing it i really wouldn't get too hung up on awards um just because it's like, okay, it's great. I got an award and stuff like that. But as long as I was enjoying writing for a living and it was, mm -hmm. you know, paying the bills, I, I'd be okay. But yeah, an award, awards are always fun. Getting recognized that you, you did something good. Let's be honest. It's, even when you're five and you're getting handed a little trophy yeah. for playing baseball, it's cool. It's fun. <laughs> it I makes agree. you feel good. Yeah. No, um, I mean, being a creator of any kind, you need to have like this sort of, ego that says whatever i'm going to create is good enough to put into the world and then you've also got to have this crippling anxiety which is like it's not good enough i've got to make it better and those two things are always intention and sometimes when award season is coming around you can listen to the ego side and say oh wouldn't it be cool or isn't it possible or maybe i'm this close to you know and then you you get disappointed for a couple of years in a row <laughs> and after that yeah. you sort of come to that zen place where it's like okay I can I can now situate myself objectively in where I am in the system and I can see that, you know, let's participate in this and have fun. But 
yeah, there's there's bigger books than mine that are going to be nominated and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Oh, and just a, a quick aside here as well. There's one page of this uh, article left, but for some reason it's all the way almost at the very end of the comic. Yeah. Even though there's just an advertisement page as the next page, and that I, I kind of that maybe somebody that uh, does magazine uh, in editing could explain that to me because that to me makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like when they break up stuff, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's people will only read the first forty pages or something, and they know that, and so they try and jam in the most important stuff. Not sure. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 not of my knowledge, but I wish it was because it just to me just like what? Why would you do that? But it's okay. It's all right. It's all good. So let's uh, moving on. Uh, yeah. We are going to jump into a story called Specimen, and this is script pencils inks uh, Bruce Jones, and uh, this is uh, another one like the uh, like the Kaluta story that I didn't uh, quite understand. They both came from Abyss uh, number one, which was a, a fanzine from 1970. There, I just want to throw that out there. I forgot when uh, we talked about the Kaluta story, but. Yeah, this is a this is an interesting story. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't see where it was going, but once I got about halfway through, I remembered what the ending was from previously oh. reading the story. But uh, I, I like when they do this. But it's a uh, yeah, this one's specimen. It says the girl was lovely, luscious, willing, and it was a long, long way to Homeworld. Art and story by Bruce Jones, and that's basically it in a nutshell. We see this guy; he's very. He reminds me a, a little bit of a, a Han Solo type guy here, where yeah. which I which I guess at this point that character didn't even exist out in the world yet. But exactly, uh, um, he's you know sitting in front of a, a console of some crazy ship here, and I love this visual here; it looks fantastic uh, by Bruce Jones, and uh, he has a uh, I don't want to say a, a prisoner aboard his ship here, but he has a, a lovely young lady who's uh, behind bars, and right away you can tell. She's aiming to try to use her uh, uh, personality, let's say, to get out of uh, behind, from behind these bars. And our, our buddy here is uh, Rad is his name, is not having it at first. But it's going to take them a few months to get from this planet where he picked her up back to, you know, home world, Earth, whatever you want to say, wherever he's from. And she slowly starts wearing him down to uh, a point where you think, uh, wow, is he going to let her out? And he makes the comment several times that he's like, yeah, you look, you know, like human or whatever, but I don't know what you are. I don't know if you're a friend, a foe, an alien. Like, I don't know what's going on here, but uh, what did you think of this story? I, um, I, th so you've got handsome pilot confronts a luring and scantily clad woman prisoner. She's coming on to him. He resists. They go to the flashback of he found her basically her distress call on planet Alpha 7. And there's this this bit about their shape changing aliens around. And because she didn't use the right credentials, you know, there wasn't the right code or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, she may be a shape changing alien. And so um, she keeps toying with them and coming on to him and he resists and says, oh, she may be an alien. Um, and he's getting more and more frustrated and finally he gives in and you know at that point me as a reader the expectations have been built up like okay now she's gonna you know transform into a monster and eat him and in fact it was the opposite and he was the monster and he was the one who, like when he said you're an alien because she's human and he wasn't like that was the the like it was a true statement and so i thought that my my two big things i took away was 
like this was fantastic misdirection. Jones deliberately played with our expectations and distracted the reader with the sex appeal of the perfect male fantasy of this attractive woman saying, let me out and we can get to know each other better. And, you know, in Smash Gordon, we had titillation and sex appeal used. And uh, I, I think another one in, in the last issue as well. But the titillation and sex appeal here is used in service of the misdirection um, because like in Smash Gordon, it felt like titillation for titillation's sake, or it was trying to make a comment in a parody way, but maybe it didn't land that well. Or, you know, it's a beautiful woman, out, you know, to help sell the books. But this wasn't doing that. This was specifically manipulating emotionally male readers um, to not pay attention to what the other possibility might be that he might, the like, that Rad might be the alien. And so I thought that this was a strong story because Jones, you know, took the, the sci-fi trope of, oh, look, it's a beautiful alien woman, and of course they can get it on and whatever, and he, he used that and used the the sort of eye candy to distract us even more so that when we got to that last panel, I was surprised. Yeah, it's it was really wild. It was a good uh, switcheroo here at the end. I love it. And, and he did uh, this uh, alien guy that ends up, you know, obviously, uh, I'm assuming killing this uh, woman, uh, consuming her, whatever, uh, he was nice enough to buy her some lingerie here. So I was like, <laughs> hey. <laughs> but I love that last panel on the next to the last page where, you know, she 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 puts on the, the shirt or whatever you want to call it. And uh, she comes out. Uh, he lets her out uh, from the cell. And uh, he uh, he's standing there looking at her. And I really like the effect there of those like, you know, uh, it almost looks like a big uh, 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 thumbprint or something over the top of the concentric interject. circles. Yeah. Yeah, really cool. And it says, she was all his now, all his. He would worry about his superiors later. Right now, he was hungry. Rad dropped his thought screen. <laughs> and then yeah. the next the next pad, panel and page there. Wow, is that great? Oh, it, it's really good. I think, yeah, I mean, sex and sci-fi and sex and comics have their history as well. And sometimes it's puerile. Sometimes it's it's like pandering. In this case, it really was, it served a really important narrative purpose that impacted the way the reader was drawn by the story in different places. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I thought it was great. And, and just the Jones art as well, all the way through, like the pure science fiction stuff. And Rad himself, like just... Uh, it was it was great. Yeah, and the final shot there of just you know space and a couple of planets and the spaceship flying there, mm-hmm. oh, fa- fantastic! Great way to end that one. Yeah. Okay. So so far, a really strong issue. I yeah. Felt. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, other than the hunter and the hunted, kind of just uh, you know being a big question mark for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that's that's my hang up. That's not necessarily Kaluta's fault. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> my br- my brain either you know maybe just isn't working or it's just it, that's not something that. Uh, you know, uh, appeals to me, but either way, it still really, really good stuff up until now. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, way to end this book here. Now we're going to jump into, uh, the last couple of chapters of, uh, the day of the Triffids that's continuing from, uh, the, uh, first issue into this one. And I got, I have to admit, I thought it went on past this issue and, I kind of wish it would have because overall I feel like they tried to jam a lot into this and they also left it on a cliffhanger, which is fine. Everything doesn't have to be resolved, but I, I feel they, they could have gone on past this 
to maybe bigger and better things. But what what are your thoughts overall? Oh, I was totally like even in the first issue when I saw that it was only, that it was going to be concluded in the next. I was like, how on earth are they going to do that? Like, there's so much story here. And as I was reading this here, I felt the story was jumpy in some places, and probably it was a bit ambitious to adapt a movie or a novel in basically 24 to 30 pages. Like Star Wars was adapted into six full comic issues, and that was a really satisfying experience. Empire Strikes Back was adapted into three, which felt rushed. And here they're adapting the equivalent of a movie into basically what's the equivalent of an oversized single issue. And I felt there were parts missing between the last issue and this one. And some of the bits of the story felt episodic. Um, I, I have some theories about why that might have happened, but like we can we can get into that. Yeah, we I mean, it starts out. It's a great splash page visually. You know, we see a guy getting the the. the I don't know what you would call that speared harpooned or whatever by the the triffid here right in front in front of our faces here and then in the background we have our two you know main characters um oh I think her name is Josella and yep. the main guy is Bill right yeah yeah and it, it's it, it starts out great action love it really cool visuals and you know there's a a guy right away that's you know getting killed or at least blinded and I do like how right away here you know, Bill's like kind of, you know, pushes the woman out of the way, like, you know, don't worry, I'll handle this. And he gets his rear end whooped by this triffid. And she, you know, jumps in front of him and is like, you know, get out of the way. I'll fight this thing. And she does. She starts fighting this thing. I, I thought that was pretty cool. I like that. Oh, I, I noted that, too, that they flipped the damsel in distress trope um, with Josella clubbing the triffid to save Bill. It brave that it doesn't work, but it, you know, it changes their the way the reader looks at at the way those two interact mm -hmm. and yeah you know jerry conway is uh, our writer here and um uh, rico rival is the artist i think i forgot to mention that but yeah great job by conway here with that uh, little switch up i i really like that but <laughs> now this next part is it's kind of ridiculous so we <laughs> see the the triffid and this like uh it almost looks like a CD uh, uh, flying through the air and cuts the, you know, air quotes head off of the triffid. And uh, Josella says, what happened? Something struck its head. And Bill says, a triffid gun, Josella. Farmers used them when growing the triffids or did use them before the catastrophe. A triffid gun? I was like, oh, boy. Holy crap! I was like, uh, I was like, oh man, that's like a, a a bridge too far for me. What was that daredevil villain? Is it the gladiator who has like buzz saws on his wrists? Or oh something? yeah, yeah. He would have been great for fighting triffids. Oh man, I just thought, well, just have somebody with like a sword or an axe or something like a triffid gun. I was like, oh boy, like that already. Like you know, we're two pages in, and I'm like, oh, I'm like, that is so weird. But uh, they, you know, they meet up with this guy Coker, who. You know, he's a sighted person still, but he has a bunch of blind uh, people with him. And, you know, he basically says, you know, I rescued you for my own reasons, friend. You two are among the few sighted people left. And these blind friends of mine you so casually abandon need your help and re they'll receive it, whether by persuasion or by force. And at the end of the, the last uh, installment, part of that had to do with, uh, you know, uh, Bill and Gisela had gotten to some kind of building. I can't remember what if they ever said what building it was, but the military was there with a few people that could still see, and they wouldn't uh, let Coker and these blind people in. They were just like, no, you know, we have no use for them, basically. So he's got a bit of an axe to grind here, and uh, they do uh, knock out Bill, and they take him and Josella 
And while Bill is knocked out, we kind of get a bit of a flashback to show us what's happened up to this point, right? Yeah, and the the flashback, I think, uh, did a fair job. I guess where where I got shocked by this was like they, you know, page 54, they meet that kernel of of the last issue, which was the very last thing. And then it just says, we've been hunting for food in the group when Coker found us. And that was the last thing I remembered. And it's like, that's that's a big that little you know caption in the next panel that's the entirety of the the sort of segue from the last issue to this one and so it felt a little rushed mm-hmm. um yeah and i i wonder if it's because they switched um artists uh, partway through and because in fact Rico Ravel i believe is in the philippines and so i don't know if if the lead time was different or whatever than having Ross Andrew do it yeah, it really, uh, you know, like I said, there's 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 parts of this story, you know, I really like. I do feel like they did try to uh, smush too much in here yeah. just just for this. I, I thought, man, they could have even just had a couple of parts over the length of these, what is it, five or six issues. And I think it would have it would have been served it much, much better. That's just oh, you know, yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah. Well, the other thing is they could have taken some stuff out because I felt another thing I felt about the story was once um, Bill and Josella were separated, the things that were happening to Bill, like, okay, now take out these new blind people and, you know, all of a sudden they're attacked by other blind people and other sighted people. And I'm like, okay, wait a second. I thought this was about humans versus triffids and now it's people versus people. And then it turned out, okay, it's not even about people versus people because there's a plague on. And then, okay, the Triffids are back. And so I felt there was a bit of an episodic thing going on as they were just trying to jam, like you say, so many things in. And I wonder if, like, if they'd taken out the people versus people stuff and made it more just about the humans versus Triffids or maybe the plague. I don't know. And and like you say, like, the the end of the story was when they started the story – you thought, okay, it must be humans versus Triffids, but the end of the story was people versus people, and the Triffids were still around, and there's no real answer as to how do the humans keep living on this. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it it's I I'm it maybe didn't decide what it was trying to be. Yeah, I just felt like I have no problem with a deeper story that has a plot and multiple subplots going on, but to try mm-hmm. to wrap that up in the, you know, the page amount here, it's just impossible. You're, you're, you're definitely going to not be able to come to a satisfactory end by the end of the the issue here. And that's kind of what happened for me. Like I, I love some of the, you know, the artwork is cool. Great. Love it. And, you know, Conway's uh, scripting is great too. I love it. You know, everybody seemed okay here. I didn't feel like anybody seemed off character wise, but yeah, you have, you know, the Triffids, you have all these gangs of people, uh, you know, plague, uh, you have there's so much going on and you, you don't, not, not one of those things comes to an end by the end of this issue. And it just felt so like, like, oh man, there was so much going on. They needed at least another issue, if not two more issues to kind of, you know, at least, uh, again, if not get to an end of some of those things would have been nice, but not all of them, but it just, you don't get to an end of anything by the end of the story here. Yeah. And I wonder too, what, what, how Conway and Rival were working because there's the Marvel method where let's say Conway might've just given, you know, a two or three page precy and then Rival would have broken it all down into panels and stuff like that. Um, if that's the case, 
um, Roy Thomas did point out that Raval was a young, new to comics artist. And the thing is, you had Ross Andrew with Ross Andrew's experience and skills that, uh, you know, a lot of experience telling comic stories. And then you've got this new guy whose draftsmanship is amazing. His, his emotions are amazing. The dynamism is amazing. But is the storytelling, like, does it follow panel to panel and can he do the jumps? Or is it just that, that Jerry Conway gave too much? Um, and then Ravel had to just do what, what Conway was asking for. So it, it depends, like, a bit on what Conway was asking for. But I'm curious as to how much... Rival's newness to the field um, had an impact. Yeah, and then there was one other thing I forgot he threw in here too. Is at one point, uh, Bill uh, he he escapes, you know, Coker and his you know uh, people because they were kind of holding him hostage. But then later on, he meets back up with Coker, and the two of them kind of do like a buddy buddy cop thing here, like a, a road trip thing, and they do come upon a house, uh, Tinsham Manor, and there's a, a woman there. And uh, I, I guess we just assume these people are probably all die. I guess that's what Conway was kind of getting at here. But they are uh, shacked up in this big house. And there's a triffid right outside the house, too, by the way. Um, and they're basically saying about how, you know, the colonel showed up from the first issue there with a bunch of his people. And uh, the guy, he says, we're friends. We're looking for the colonel. And the woman says, then you won't find him here. We're God fearing folks, not the likes of him. And he goes, pardon. And she goes, I spoke plainly, I trust. He had strange ideas, the colonel did, about us abandoning decent morality of breeding like animals without God's consent in marriage. I'll have none of that, I said. So, uh, look, I totally understand, you know, uh, that line of thinking in uh, normal times. But if there's only a couple of people left on the planet that can see and can fight against this uh, threat, like really lady that's the hill you're gonna die on i was like i don't know I, I, I don't know man sorry like and i'm probably a lot more uh, uh conservative than most as far as that kind of stuff goes and i'm still just like yeah no lady that you you can't hold that value while this is going on i'm sorry <laughs> yeah i i mean the that whole episode i'm not sure what it added to the narrative and so i just counted that as like there's eight panels <laughs> that were kind of wasted and could have been used for something else yeah, that was a weird interlude there. It didn't really, like you said, it didn't push anything forward at all except to show that there's, you know, this crazy group of people that are willing to just die because they won't uh, try to repopulate the earth. It's just like, yeah. okay, okay. But yeah, like I said, it didn't, do, it didn't do really anything for the story or for Bill and Coker because they were just like, all right, have fun with that. See you later. We'll be alive and you'll be dead. And they get in their van and they drive off. It's like yeah. kind of completely unnecessary but yeah it's just uh, and then you know i kind of felt that way too about when uh, you know uh, coker and bill then kind of uh, split ways because uh, they have a difference of opinion on how things are gonna you know shake out and what to do about that and when bill takes off he eventually runs uh, down this road and there's like a i don't know maybe like a 10 year old girl or something like that there and she's running around by herself and oh my little brother and this and that and uh, unfortunately he's uh, no longer with us but uh, he he picks her up and takes her along for the ride. And again, I don't really. This was it, the second girl sidekick, right? The first yeah. one was the one who died of the plague. And so it, it feels like there's repeated beats um, in the story that were, again, unneeded. And so this is why I said 
Um, I don't know, like, cause Jerry Conway is a very solid writer, like mm -hmm. from, from the get go in like what, 72, 71 and 70, yeah. he was really showing his chops. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes you see artists who have, you know, who take some time to figure out the storytelling details because it's in like the, the skills, it's another sort of skill set. And so here, uh, yeah, like there are important story choices that I felt were were not being made. Like you know, you 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 can't do everything as you say. Um, one one thing I did like about this Susan character, like on page sixty two and especially sixty three, there's this um, top of page sixty three. There's a close up of of Susan's face and gave me like huge Rudy Nebra's vibes. And oh, and okay. Then I looked and like, obviously both are Filipino artists. They were both working for the same sorts of issues of the black and whites. So I assumed they knew each other um, because they, a, a lot of the Filipino artists were, were you know, working in, in, in studios together, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think there was one or two Filipino artists who had been working in the US and then they went back to the Philippines and said, hey guys, I can get work for you, us. Um, you know, at much higher rates than we can get in the Philippines. And because we're, you know, lower rates than in the US, we, you know, we can get a lot of work that way. And so they, th there was that whole Filipino art invasion sort of thing going on, which was, was a huge um, cultural inflow of, of new art styles. And so this one, anyway, just as a super aside, it's just Rudy Nebra's vibe all the way on Susan's face there for me. Yeah, I love Rudy Nepper. He's a great artist. He did some Doctor Strange, too. Oh, good stuff. Oh, and John Carter, too. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, this this Susan here, I'm on Team Susan on the top of page <laughs> 65 when uh, Bill finally does reunite with Josella. He jumps out of the van, and it's pouring rain, and he starts making out with her. And uh, Susan uh, kind of sticks her head out and says, listen, couldn't you kiss her inside? It's raining, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that was great. But yeah, then they come in this other house and there's, you know, these people that are blind and, you know, they're kind of like going to, you know, put up like a wired fence with like electricity to just kind of like live their, their own life here. I guess they're just going to stay there till maybe some kind of help maybe you'll come. And if not, they're going to try to just be self-sufficient and, and farm and all this stuff. It's just, yeah, it's just, there's a lot going on. Like, and then this other gang shows up or like, you know, kind of like a protection racket, like the mob, like, Hey, you know, we run these parts and, uh, you, you need to pay us for protection money or else, uh, you know, we're going to, uh, you know, you know, let the Triffids kill yeah. you or we're going to shoot you or whatever they're going to do. But then they, you know, get those guys drunk and then, <laughs> you know, disable their vehicle. It's just like, yeah, so much uh, kind of going on there. It's just way, way too much stuff to try to like, finish it off here and it's just you know kind of ends on with bill and Josella like looking over uh you know the off a, a cliff here at the house that's burning down with those thugs and the uh the triffids inside yeah and and it, again it goes back to like when i'm reading a story i'll ask myself you know let's say in the first quarter what's the plot question and the plot question for the day of the triffids the first quarter for me was how are the humans going to survive the triffid thing or what are they going to do about it and the story didn't answer that which leads me to say this story was not like the plot was not very strong so yeah mm -hmm. yeah so that, the art is spectacular yeah absolutely so yeah that, that's that's the, the end of the triffids and uh then we have an epilogue here we get uh, more with uh, uh mr time and this lawrence wilder guy and uh he's uh you know obsessed with his uh wife who uh he does uh find out or we do find out after he says 
you, don't you understand, he says to Time. And Time says, of course I do. A slow glass window shows whatever it saw for as long as it saw the scene. And and Wilder says, will you cease your prattling? My wife was beautiful, more beautiful than any woman I'd ever possessed, which that sounds kind of creepy, by the way. And then he yeah, goes, it's all creep. <laughs> yeah, I had to be the only one to possess her. That's why I bought that damn window from you to capture her image. It was the perfect solution. A slow glass image could never be unfaithful to me. So when I'd caught that image, I killed her. And I was like, holy crap, this is this went down a road. I didn't think it was going to go down. And <laughs> then uh, he starts choking Mr. Time here. But I thought he was going to, like, you know, kill Mr. Time here. But he kind of lets him go. Right. Yeah, it's um, it's an O. Henry twist ending. Um, the The whole point of this like the framing story is to say the conceit is like, Oh, look, all of these stories are connected in some way because we're looking through this slow glass at different possibilities of the future and past and side worlds and so on. And so I can see that. And so they don't need this story to do much other than just to sustain itself for like three pages. And with something like that, an O Henry twist ending with, you know, a crazy guy is, you know, it's a quick way out for the writer. Mm hmm. Yeah. And so the, the, this Wilder guy, you know, he does, you know, let time go because he just goes on and on about this woman. And he says, get out of here, Mr. Time. And Mr. Time goes down the elevator and he goes, that's odd. The doorman isn't here. And he <laughs> goes around the corner and the doorman's not there because uh, Wilder jumped uh, out of the uh, top of the penthouse here and killed himself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I miss uh, I mean, uh, you know, best possible ending for the way he was set up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah that's that's it then for this uh issue here this is you know like we said it's it, it had a little bit of ups and downs but overall it was a pretty strong issue right i thought so yeah 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 and there were some really good advertisements in this one too planet of the apes and of course bodybuilding and uh, martial arts you know you can't <laughs> you, you can't go wrong with those and then i do love the advertisement on page 78 and it's uh you know, two magazine advertisements here, Marvel pushing a savage sort of Conan mm -hmm. and uh, then uh, Monsters of the Movies. And it's a, a Godzilla cover. So I really like that advertisement quite a bit. Yeah, no, no, these uh, and you can see on the shelves like we were talking about the covers, how those covers are relatively dark. And the cover that we've got on this one would have would have stood out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So any final thoughts there on this one? No, I think, um, like you say, it was it was uh, I it was a stronger issue than the first, and the first was a good issue to start with. I really enjoyed being introduced to new artists, and I mean, in that pack, you've got um, you know George Perez and stuff, Alex Nino, Rico Raval, um, and I think that um, you know these people who were also cutting their teeth, these new writers like Jerry Conway and and Denny O'Neill, like because Denny O'Neill had only started in what 69, 68. and so yeah. this is not far into his career either. So it's it's neat to see what um, these up and coming writers and artists are going to do with with this uh, with this possibility of this sci fi medium thing going on, and and Kaluta as well. It's great and. Bruce Jones, like fantastic stuff. Like I wouldn't see Bruce Jones again until either heavy metal or epic of like, you know, early eighties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is really cool to see a lot of these artists and, you know, in writers as well, you know, just, just when their careers were either just starting or just starting to take off into, you know, higher, uh, 
higher echelons here. Really, really good stuff. But yeah, really awesome stuff. Anybody, uh, it's, again, if you can find these magazines out there, get them. Yeah, you'll really like them if you're into sci-fi and obviously black and white. Uh, you know, most of these stories, if not all of them, serves them pretty well. As, uh, yeah, so, all right. Well, that's uh, going to wrap us up, man. So uh, if anybody uh, is looking for you, and anything you do, where can they find that? Your website, about the best uh, spot to look? Yeah, like depending on how Twitter goes with, uh, you know, oh Elon Musk, uh, ratcheting <laughs> back uh, because he's not paying his bills uh. to Google, the AWS service that, you know, hosts most of this stuff. And so now, you know, uh, Twitter seems to be going downhill um, again, right? I mean, you get these false alarms every so often. Um, yeah, but I'm Derek Krinskin on Twitter, D-E-R-E-K-K-U-N-S-K-E-N, and that's my website as well, uh, just my name, uh, no spaces. And uh, yeah, like uh, things that are coming up for me is um, at the end of August, I've got a new book coming out called The House of Saints. Uh, it's the second and concluding book to The House of Sticks, which is a, a science fiction family saga set in the clouds of Venus. Um, and so I'm really happy that that's coming out and uh, excited. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, and I'll have links to all this stuff in the show notes as well. And then, uh, you know, uh, we uh, we can uh, definitely, uh, hey, if, if even, I think this this episode should probably be out, I'm trying to think. Yeah, it should definitely be out before your, your next book there. So uh, oh, cool. I can try to package them together, uh, you know, when it comes <laughs> out, uh, get everybody getting to your website or, you know, Amazon. I'll have a link to that as well if anybody wants to go to that uh, right there and just grab your books and stuff. So, all right. Well, thanks for being on, Derek. This was a blast, man. I had a really good time the last time and this time as well. So looking forward to issue number three. I, I'm not reading ahead, so that'll be uh, all brand new to me because I, I can't even remember what went on in any of these books. This one, it, it, the, the specimen one did come to me. I remembered reading. I knew what was going to happen about halfway through that one. And I do remember War Toy, a little bit of that. But sometimes the endings are uh, not uh, uh, sticking with me. But I do, oh, yeah, this one on or that one on. So uh, really looking forward to issue three. Same, same, same. Awesome. So, all right, that's going to uh, take us out here. And uh, I'll be back in just a minute to wrap things up. Okay, everybody, that wraps up the show. Once again, I want to thank Derek for being on. Love having Derek on the show. You know, he's a busy guy, got a family, and, you know, he's a, a writer. So it's, uh, it's you know, always tough trying to work these uh, busy uh, people into my schedule. Uh, but I love having him on, and we're definitely going to, uh, you know, talk about the other issues of this series. We have a really good time with them, and they're really fun and interesting, and any sci-fi fan really needs to get these because uh, they are a really good uh, timepiece, you know. Uh, showing uh, what had happened previously in sci-fi and kind of where sci-fi was at the time in the mid-70s and going towards the future as well. Some great established artists and writers and some great uh, up-and-comers as well. So uh, definitely seek out these magazines and definitely tune in again uh, next week and uh, we will have another show for you. 